Just a brief disclaimer this week, there is some stronger-than-usual violence. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the conclusion to our round of Kukulin stories from Irish folklore, where we'll learn the dangers of fighting children and how, if your drinks keep turning to blood, that might be a bad thing. The creature this week is why you should be honest with someone if you don't like them. They may turn into a horrifying snake monster and hunt you down when they learn the truth. This is Myths and Legends, episode 139b, Evitable. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you'd think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, Kukulin lost a fight with a very powerful king, who stomped him into the ground, rubbed dung on his face, and took off into the countryside. That is where we left it last week. But the truth is, that doesn't really matter. In a story that's kind of a rehash of Koshe the Deathless, Kukulin ends up killing the powerful king. And so today, we pick up the tale years later. This time, Kukulin will learn that a life spent killing people all over Ireland has consequences, but not until after another massive, mandatory party. Kinkerhur slapped Kukulin on the back. Leave? Why would he want to leave? It had been years. Years since Kukulin, Leg, Kruhur, and others had swarmed the fort on the Isle of Man. Years since Kukulin had been shamed with dung smeared across his face. Kukulin had found the man responsible. A man by the name of Kuroi. It was a magical king, but king or no, or magical or no, if Kukulin wanted someone dead, it would be so. That was how the world worked. And King Kruhur was grateful that Kukulin was on his side. Now, King Kruhur was trying to keep him safe in Emimaka, the city of kings, because he knew. He knew that Queen Maeve had been plotting Kukulin's death since the day he found her in that clearing and ended the war. Now, nearly 20 years on, plans were finally coming to fruition. At this point, Kukulin had regained his honor and killed a king by the name of Kuroi. Kuroi had taken that princess we talked about last episode, one of Kukulin's many, many lovers, and the Irish champion had pursued the man back to his fortress. It had taken a year, a long one, but a message from Kukulin to the princess finally reached its destination, and it revealed Kuroi's weakness. His soul was hidden in an apple. Of course, Kukulin had found the apple, and when a stream flowed white, a message from the princess that Kuroi was in the bath and thus would be caught flat-footed, Kukulin stormed the castle, killing Kuroi's guards and, eventually, Kuroi himself. Cue love lifts us up where we belong, and Kukulin scooped the princess up and carried her from the fort like Richard Gere. I'm not sure what happened to the princess, because the story goes that Kukulin just went home like nothing happened, even after spending a year scouring the land, trying to save his mistress. There were, however, ramifications following the death of Kuroi. Kuroi's wife was pregnant with a son, and as that son grew, he seemed to be an even more frightful man than his father. And now, that child had grown up. But that wasn't the only problem. Long ago, Kukulin had also killed a sorcerer by the name of Kalatan. I mean, Kukulin killed a lot of fathers and stopped caring pretty much as soon as the sword exited the other side of their body. And he certainly didn't care that Kalatan had just conceived sextuplets with his wife. And that said sextuplets 
would have their father's magical inclinations. But you know who did care? Queen Maeve, the Queen of Connacht. She never forgot the toyne and the humiliation Cucullin had brought upon her on that last day of battle. So she found the pregnant wife of the displaced sorcerer and the orphan son of Kuroi, and she invited them to Connacht. And together, they formed a plan. That plan was now a motion. In fact, it was happening right at this very moment, outside the gate of Emamaka. They would have drawn Kukulin out into a doomed battle, too, if it wasn't for Kuror's massive party. When the six children arrived, they began by magically producing the sounds of battle. Sounds that would draw Kukulin from the protection of the city and into their grasp. And it would have been effective if Kuror hadn't been one step ahead of Queen Maeve. Having spies watching her spies, Kuror knew that the children were on their way. And, as the whole episode in Fairyland proved, Kukulin was weak against magic. They all were. If Kukulin left, Kuror would lose his best warrior. His kingdom would fade from the earth. He couldn't, he wouldn't let that happen. So, of course, he partied. On the night before he knew the Avengers were set to arrive, he threw the biggest party the city, heck, probably even Ireland, had ever seen. It was loud, and it was rowdy, and it was awesome, drowning out any noise from the battle from the surrounding countryside. And it was also long. Grrr was not an old man, but he wasn't young anymore. And even Kukulin, the boy hero, was now an adult. Day two of the party rolled around, and everyone was starting to slow down. The constant drinking and dancing and music was fun for the first, I don't know, few hours? Maybe the night? By the time dawn rolled around, the crowd was feeling a little rough. Still, they pressed on. By day three, Kuhura could see that this was pretty unsustainable. He was even starting to hear the din of battle over the instruments, as like 60% or so of the party had fallen asleep right where they had sat down to just rest their eyes for, you know, a few minutes. Why had he thought this was a good idea? It was way too much work to keep a perpetual party going forever, when all the six tiny Avengers outside the wall had to do was stick their battle playlist on repeat and wait. Kuhura could barely keep his eyes open, and he yelled out for the others. They needed to activate the failsafe. They needed him. Fergus. Fergus McRoach was the foster father of Gukulin. He was the one who had trained and helped raise their hero. He had been exiled from Ulster on account of King Kruhur's cowardice and then fought against them, siding with Maeve and the Toyne. Up until the stalemate between Kukulin and Fergus, foster father and foster son poised against one another, but neither willing to kill the other. You can imagine, then, Kukulin's level of surprise at the sight of Fergus outside the walls of Ulster. He was a persona non grata. Fergus approached his foster son. Hey, long time no see. There's a... A quest, I, I don't know, evil monster or fairy or something? It wasn't important. Cucullin just had to leave, immediately. His kingdom, nay, all of Ireland needed him. Cucullin nodded. That sounded cool. Also, this party was about two days past its prime, so he had no objections to getting out of there. In no time at all, he found his horse, Liamaka, and rode with Fergus to the Valley of the Deaf. Relieved by the news that Kukulin was safely away, Kuhur and all the partiers that remained conscious passed out right where they stood.
So what great monster am I facing? Kukulin asked, looking around skeptically. Fergus's face lit up. Plot twist, the monster he needed to face was the crushing ennui of isolation. Kukulin had bested the greatest enemies Ireland had ever faced, but could he be alone with his own thoughts in the Valley of the Deaf? Kukulin sighed. What's going on, Fergus? His father figure cast his eyes to the ground and revealed everything. Kukulin sat listening as Fergus finished his exposition. When it was over, Kukulin picked up his belt and strapped his sword to his side. Fergus grabbed his arm. What was he doing? Kukulin shrugged. He was going to go kill some wizard kids? He didn't understand how this was different from any other time any other person or magical creature wanted him dead. Fergus thought for a moment. You know, he didn't really know either. But Grahur seemed pretty worried about it. Kukulin pursed his lips. Yeah, and Grahur got like half of his countrymen killed over a bull. Maybe he wasn't the picture of good judgment. Just then, they heard a voice behind them. They hadn't heard anyone approach because, well, they were in the Valley of the Deaf, which didn't allow any sound in or out of it. It did, however, allow people to pass through. People like Kukulin's old friend, Nime. Fergus relaxed when he saw a familiar face, and Nime began by saying that there was a great battle, the likes of which Ulster's greatest hero needed. Hey, real quickly, Kukulin broke in. Are you sure you're Nime? Are you sure you're not a child Avenger wizard? Nime paused, but not in the way that most people would, you know, confused about being called a child Avenger wizard, but in the way that a child Avenger wizard would. The child Avenger wizard stood there awkwardly. Don't worry, I'll come to battle or whatever trap you're trying to lay. Just make peace with, you know, whatever a child Avenger wizard believes in, because it's not going to go well for any of you. Wide-eyed. The daughter of Calatan threw something on the ground, and when the smoke cleared, she was gone. Eh, points for tenacity, I guess, Kukulin said, and went to go find his horse. When he found Liamaka, his horse, the horse jerked away from him as he reached to grab the reins. Kukulin furrowed his brow and reached again, but again, Liamaka danced backwards, showing him the whites of his eyes. In all the time they'd spent together, fighting side by side in battle, this was the first time his horse had ever refused to do his will. The horse looked at him and snorted. Don't worry, he coaxed. He was a warrior in the prime of his life. Had he not defeated a whole army pretty much single-handedly? Twice? He had been trained by the best druid priestess Scotland had to offer. He had Leg as his charioteer and Liamaka as his horse. They were fine. Liamaka hesitated before trotting forward and lowering his head. Kukulin jumped quickly atop and urged him on for Emimaka and Leg, who was probably stuck on cleanup duty after the party. There was a battle to fight. As they rode, Kukulin was focused on the task at hand, looking forward. There was no way he would have known of the drops that fell on the ground as he rode on. He was ignorant of the fact that his loyal horse, Liamaka, was crying tears of blood for his brave rider. When the pair arrived at Emamaka, King Kruhura City, the jig was up. The battle sounds outside were gone, the people were still sleeping it off, and King Kruhura shared a slightly more tempered version of Kukulin's optimism. 
it was going to be okay. This was Ku Cullen. He had watched in awe as the guy, barely a young man at the time, activated his warp spasm and hulked out on the battlefield, killing countless warriors of Queen Maeve. He had heard of the battle against Ferdia and the Ford, one that almost killed Ku Cullen. He knew of Senec the Spectral and Ku Roy and dozens of other exploits. He would be okay. King Kruhura sighed. If only he could believe it himself. Kukulin announced that he was going to go fight like seven children. It was about a day's ride to the location, and the battle should take him eh, about an hour, if he accounted for a 45-minute nap beforehand. He'd be back tomorrow. He nodded to his wife, who said she'd see him when he got back. His mom, Dectre, came out with her customary goblet of wine. Kukulin rolled his eyes. He always tried to get out of the city before his mom came out with a goblet of blessed wine. No matter how many times he went to the battle and returned, she always worried. He held up his hand and smiled. She didn't need to do this. Seriously, it was killing children. Wizard children. Super easy. Still, he took the cup and put it to his lips for a big gulp. Almost immediately, the liquid stopped in his throat with a gag. He scrambled to a bush and spat it out. When he turned back to his mom, she recoiled. The blessed wine had turned to blood. King Kruhur was the first to speak. Okay, seriously, Kukulin needed to rethink what was going on here. This was blessed wine that had turned to blood. This was an omen. Kukulin rolled his eyes again. Seriously, he had gone to battle how many times in his life? And how many times has the blessed wine turned to blood in your mouth? King Kruhur rejoined. No, 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 do it over. Come on, more wine. It was a fluke. Kukulin ordered with a circular wave of his hand. As his mom went to fetch more blessed battle wine, King Kruhur sputtered. How could wine turning into blood on the eve of battle have possibly been a fluke? That wasn't something that just happened. But Kukulin wasn't listening, especially after he took a long draw to the next cup of wine, which had also turned to blood. He managed to gulp down a mouthful. Mmm, it was so good. He loved this. He loved the blood of his enemies. This wasn't an ill omen, but a really good thing that he definitely liked. His mom burst into tears, and Kruhur looked to the ground. But Kukulin gave his mom a brief hug and nodded to the king. He'd be back tomorrow. Leg met him outside the walls with Leah Maka on his chariot. Kukulin announced that he didn't want to hear a single word for the duration of the trip, and Leg nodded. They were for the appointed time and place, and Kukulin, honestly, was not worried at all. Not even when they forded a stream and passed an old woman washing clothes, laughing to herself. He turned back, asking the old woman how she could possibly be having so much fun washing clothes, and she looked up at him with a smile. Oh, she hadn't seen him there. She was just washing the armor of a warrior. When it was going to die today? Kukulin cocked an eyebrow. And who was this warrior? The woman grew serious. The warrior's name was Kukulin. Again, she started laughing, and as she did, both she and the armor she washed became like smoke on the wind and vanished. Kukulin shrugged. Huh, weird old woman. As far as omens went though, your horse crying blood and then drinking a goblet of blood really kind of overshadowed the enthusiastic clothes washer. The gods would have to do better. Around midday, Kukulin and Leg slowed Liamaka when they saw a small fire around which sat three elderly women. They had been riding for hours since the river, and had not only seen no one, 
but hadn't had anything to eat. The trip was taking longer than Cucullin's calculations, and the rotating meat on the spit looked awfully tempting. He slid down from his horse and greeted the women, who smiled and offered him a seat by their fire. Leg told him to go get something to eat. He needed his strength. Leg would be there after he tended to Liamaka. The women shared that they were sisters, who lived in a small hut not far from here. They liked to come to the road sometimes, see who might pass. Kukulin was their only visitor today. Would he like some meat? Kukulin grinned. If they knew anything about him, they would know he couldn't refuse an offer of hospitality from a woman. Like, literally. It was a vow he had taken, among others, long ago. If he observed it, he would be made even more powerful. But if he failed to observe it, his decision could bring dishonor, or worse. So, yeah, he was honor-bound to eat. What were they having? One of the old women flashed a nearly toothless smile. Hound. Kukulin pulled back his hand. That? Oh. Oh, no. The three women cackled as the other two were being pulled toward the woman in the center. Kukulin blinked, and the three became one. He was no longer staring into the failing eyes of the oldest woman he had ever seen, but the cold, dark, eternally youthful eyes he had seen long ago when he refused her love. It was the Morrigan, the Phantom Queen, the goddess of war and fate. She sat there in her trademark blood-stained clothes, holding out the shoulder of the hound, now dripping grease on the ground. He had seen her before, on the eve of battle. She had cursed him when he refused her love, and all throughout the toying she tried, and failed, to kill him. He had healed her, accidentally, and that brought Kukulin's war with fate to an uneasy truce. Now, it seemed, she had allied with the rest of the world to collect on the promise that she had made long, long ago, that she would find him at the time of his death. The Morgan held out an impossible choice. Kukulin had once sworn to never refuse the hospitality of a woman, but, additionally, he had sworn to never eat the meat of his namesake, the hound. Now, the Morgan held out a choice of promises to break. She stared on with cold indifference. This wasn't personal, as it had been before. This was just hard, immutable fate. Kukulin must be offered a choice on this day. She had as much control over his choice as she did over the sunrise. She had no power over it, yet she knew what would happen. Without breaking eye contact, Kukulin took the meat and bit into it. And when he did, he cried out. As soon as his mouth touched the meat, his left arm lost his legendary hero super strength. It wasn't that he was weak, he just wasn't Kukulin strong anymore. And it was unexpected. The meat dropped from his hand and bounced off his thigh before hitting the ground. When it did, the strength evaporated from that limb as well. The whole left side of his body now had the strength of a mortal man. With a sneer, Gukulin rose, using his spear as a crutch. He didn't need the strength. He had never needed it. It had never aided him in what he did. What use was a little more strength when facing down the armies of Connacht or Senec the Spectral? He was still Kukulin. The Morgan nodded. He was. He was the sum of all of his choices, including the one he had just made. With that, she and the fire vanished. What? What happened? Why are you limping? Where did the fire go? Is there any meat left? Leg hounded Kukulin. The legendary hero walked, using his spear as a cane 
while trying to adjust to his new left-sided weakness. His body reduced to the strength of a man at the pinnacle of human fitness. Not a word, Kukulin said with a grunt as he boarded the chariot. It was time to go. They were almost there. Here he comes, one of the daughters of Calatin said. Lugade, son of Kuroi, stood next to her, in front of his father's host. All those years ago, Kukulin had killed Lugade's father and laid waste to Kuroi's fortress. But Kukulin hadn't taken the people that were loyal to his father. They now stood assembled behind Lugade, and the six wizard Avenger children, ready to finally bring justice for their king. Get his spear, the eldest daughter said. Whatever the cost, get a spear. Lugade looked back. That might be kind of tough, don't you think? The daughter didn't look at him, but replied that it was in their fate that the spear would kill three kings at this battle. It would either be thrown by them or thrown at them. Get the spear, whatever the cost, she repeated, and went to join her siblings at the head of the army. As the chariot thundered to a stop, Kukulin looked on the army. He had killed worse in grade school, literally. The six at the front were new, and the son of Kuroi was the one who might present a challenge. People still talked about what Kuroi did on the Isle of Man, though most of their jeers had been silenced when Kukulin buried his sword in the man's stomach. Then, Kukulin counted. There weren't just six people among the children of Kalaten. There were nine. Oh no. Poets. Kukulin was hiding his limp, but he couldn't hide his shock. Lugade saw that shock and smiled. He'd need that spear, or the next poem these satirists would tell would be that of Kukulin. The poet stepped forward with a smile. The spear to me, Kukulin. Okay, so this next part makes very little sense to us nowadays, but I looked up just why it was kind of a big deal to Kukulin. These are poets, but more specifically, they're satirists. Now, early medieval Ireland was a very fragmented place, and the kingdoms were largely locked down, with only a few types of people being able to travel across borders, druids and poets being among those numbers. They traveled from place to place singing poems, with very little restriction where they could repeat those poems, or who they could sing about. Basically, Lugate was threatening to trash Kukulin's name, not just in their own kingdom, but among all kingdoms, for all time, they were going to run an anti-Kukulin propaganda campaign the likes of which the world had never seen. To a legendary hero who had spent his entire life predicated on living forever in myth, this was worse than death. Kukulin glared as he listened to the poet saying all this. The poet wanted his spear, huh? The poet nodded. Again, yes, throw the spear to me. Very poor choice of words, Kukulin mumbled as he let the spear fly. It went through the poet's head, and the head of nine warriors standing behind him before lurching to a gooey stop. Lugade wasted no time. In seconds, he bounded over and gripped the spear by its butt, yanking it out of nine heads on the most unpleasant shish kebab. He bellowed, What will fall by the spear? To the children of Calatan, they sung back in unison, A king will fall by that spear. Kukulin rolled his eyes. All right, points for showmanship. 
Let's get on with it. He braced for impact as Lugade flung a spear, but at the last moment, Kukulin saw it sail past him. He reached for it, but he was too late. Kukulin spun around and saw that it was buried in Leg's stomach. Kukulin dropped his shield and ran to his friend, who had pulled the spear out on his own, and, according to the story, whose entrails were already spilling out all over the chariot he had so proudly driven. Kukulin's oldest friend, the king of charioteers, couldn't speak, and it wasn't long until his eyes closed for the final time, being held by Kukulin, his hero, and his friend. The next satirist piped up from the line, saying that Kukulin's honor was safe, but Ulster's honor, the honor of his kingdom, was not. If Kukulin didn't send the spear back, the honor of his country and his countrymen would be sacrificed at the altar of his selfishness. Kukulin raged and, once again, sent the spear back. It took the place of the poet's threats in his mouth and, again, killed nine others for good measure. Kukulin stood as he watched Lou Gade make his way to the spear. Kukulin gently positioned Leg's body on the cushion in the chariot, saying that they would ride together one last time, but Kukulin would drive. Or so he thought. The target, once again, wasn't Kukulin, but Liamaka, the king of horses. The chariot slowed, and Kukulin ran to his horse, jerking the spear from his chest. The horse's breathing became labored, and once again, Kukulin heard a voice behind him. It was the third poet, mouthing off about how he was going to defame Kukulin's race if he didn't send the spear back. I take that to mean that he would trash Kukulin's line, which included the kings of Ulster, but Kukulin didn't ask for clarification. He just wanted the man to stop talking. He flung the spear without looking backwards. Even butt first, it still went through the poet's head, and nine more. As Kukulin stroked the horse's face, he knew. He knew that Liamaka crying blood, the blood in the wine cups, the woman washing the clothes, and the Morgan's prophecy had all been right. On this day, he had lost more than on all of his other battles combined. He wouldn't be coming back from this one. He knew that now. His past, his fate, had finally caught up to him. A whirling sound caught his attention, and he turned, just in time for his own spear to pierce through his stomach. Lugade still stood with his hand pointed at Kukulin. The spear had pierced the third king, the king of warriors. Kukulin, the prophecy, had been fulfilled. Kukulin wrenched the spear from his body and watched the blood pour from his torso. He coughed and blood pooled up in his mouth. It was over. It was ending. He spat, looking toward a lake not far behind him. He yelled across the field. He would like to go take a drink from that lake, if he could. Have one last moment of peace before it all went dark. Lugade nodded but demanded that Kukulin return to the battlefield. Kukulin's life belonged to him. Kukulin showed his hands, drenched with his own blood by now. Kukulin's life was already Lugade's, but yes, he would be back. Even though there weren't any bards left on this battlefield, he wouldn't have the songs about him be lacking. With the flick of his sword, Kukulin cut Liamaka free. He should be free in his last moments of life. Maybe he would follow Kukulin to the water and die with his friend. Maybe he would run off and join his brethren while he could. Liamaka, Kukulin's proud, gray horse, did neither of those things. 
As Kukulin limped to the lake, Liamaka's eyes filled with fire as he looked on the army standing before him. Kukulin smirked as, behind him, he heard 50 men die by Liamaka's teeth alone and then 30 die by each of his hooves. The last thing that Kukulin heard of his faithful friend was a proud snort before dozens of warriors piled on. At the water's edge, Kukulin might have been tempted to die in peace there, looking out on the lake, but that wasn't what he wanted the songs to be about. He would die in his feet with a laugh in his mouth. So he rose and started back to the battlefield. About halfway, he knew that he would not be dying on his feet, at least not of his own strength. He could also barely stand, let alone walk. The army jeered as they watched the once great warrior, the Hound of Ulster, limp out to face them. Sword in hand, Kukona barely made it to the rock at the center of the battlefield when he sparked an idea. He would ensure that he died on his feet. He took some rope and lashed his own torso to the boulder. It was tight and strong. And not only did it prop him up enough to die on his feet, but it stopped the bleeding. He looked to Legade and the Avenger wizard children and what was left of their warriors after Liamaka had his way with them. And he gestured for them to come forward. But they didn't. Lugate held out his hand to stop his warriors. Even dying and lashed to a rock, Kukulin could take out a lot of them. The Avenger wizard kids didn't go either. Kukulin was dying. That was the whole point of this trip. Outdated and dangerous notions of honor had cost Kukulin his life. And they wouldn't make the same mistake. He was dying. And so they would wait him out. And wait they did. For three whole days, Kukulin stood there, jeering at them, calling them cowards for their unwillingness to face him. He slapped his shield with his sword and yelled, but not one foot ventured forward. It was on the dawn of the third day that a crow, trotting along the battlefield, wasn't watching where it was going and face-planted as it tripped over Kukulin's entrail that was still out there on the ground. Kukulin laughed out loud and, with a laugh in his mouth, the Hound of Ulster died. It was still another few hours before anyone would approach. Not until the Morrigan herself, the goddess of fate and war, confirmed that the great Cucullin was dead. Dead, but being left to rot lashed to a rock. She fluttered down in the form of a raven and landed on his shoulder. When Lugate and the others saw that he didn't stir, they knew that Kukulin was gone, and it was over. The Morrigan fluttered away from Kukulin as Lugate approached. With the first blow, he severed Kukulin's head from his body, but then he tossed away his sword. He wanted Kukulin's, the one that had killed his father. He started to pry Kukulin's fingers away from the handle, but even in death, Kukulin's grip was like iron. After a good 10 minutes of trying and failing to loosen Kukulin's fingers, Lugate picked up his sword and sliced off Kukulin's hand. A scream echoed across the field as Kukulin claimed to win even in death. As Kukulin's sword fell, it had sliced off Lugate's hand as well. The victor would possess the sword of Kukulin, but he would never be able to use it. At the end of the day, the six children rode for home, and so did Lugate but the legend of Cúchulain spread across Ireland. King Corhur's poet sang of how the warrior died on his feet, facing an army by himself. They mourned him, 
and King Krahur mourned his own reign, knowing that his time was short. Fergus, the man without a kingdom, had a solemn night among his own warriors, as Queen Maeve celebrated in Connacht. None of the people who rejoiced over the death of Cucullin knew about the oath, though. Long ago, when they were young men, Cucullin and his friend Connell, who we haven't mentioned on this podcast before, so don't worry if you don't recognize the name, had sworn an oath to each other. They swore an oath that, if one of them died first, the other would avenge him. It had been years, and a lifetime of things had happened since then. But Connell never forgot. He learned the names of those who had shamefully waited for Cucullin to die, instead of fighting him. And the ones who had laid the trap. The six Avenger wizard kids. Lugade McConroy, King Aleel and Queen Maeve. They would all meet their end. They would all pay for Cucullin. So that's it. That's the death of Cucullin. And that's where we're going to leave it this week. I do like this tale's assertion that everyone fails sometimes. Everyone grows old, and time passes us all by. All of us, even people like Cucullin, living is learning to accept that and choosing to continue onward. It's interesting that the same things that gave Cucullin all of his glory also made his death inevitable. We could see that there were like 20 different points at which our hero could have stepped off the roller coaster, but he stayed on. Not because he was full of himself, though I absolutely think Cucullin was reasonably full of himself, but because that same system of honor that dictated his life would also orchestrate his death. In that way, his death, like his rise, was inevitable. And as always, there's more story to this. We'll tell the story of Connell's revenge, and how everything ends up for Lugade, Aleel, Maeve, Krahur, Fergus, and others. But that won't be for a little while. We'll let Cucullin have his moment for now. I want to say thanks to Nicholas Chiodo, Z Jacobs, Norm071, Chickbutt, No Time To, Callum Ambrosie, Susie P, Megalese, Orchid709, Richie Rich8, Divad, JP1234567123456, Aspen Chick, and ABCDEFELE. A lot of really original names this week. Thank you so much for the review. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is Kiyohime from Japanese folklore. Kiyohime translates to Lady Kiyo or Princess Kiyo. And her story starts with a really, really ridiculously good looking monk. Anshin would travel from Mitsu to Kumano on a pilgrimage every year. And every year, he would gratefully accept the hospitality of a certain family. Now, no matter how much he said he didn't care about earthly things, how he pretended not to notice so many people checking him out, he knew. He knew he had it going on. One night, the father, the lord of the manor, confided in the monk that they were having problems with the young lady, Lady Keo. The monk said, jokingly, that if she were a good girl and behaved herself, he would marry her and take her to Mutsu. The lord of the manor laughed. What a normal and okay thing to say about his 10-year-old daughter. Everyone was in on the joke, except for Lady Keo. For years, she looked forward to Anshin's visits. Finally, the year arrived when Lady Keo came of age. She met him at the gate, a smile on her face. She was ready to go away with him. They were going to be so happy together. 
Inchin laughed, and then he stopped laughing. Oh, that. Huh. Yeah, he remembered that thing that definitely wasn't a joke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he would marry her. He just had to finish his pilgrimage first. Now, he always stayed with him on the way there and on the way back. So Lady Kyo knew just how long it took. For the entire day, she waited for him to return. And then she saw him, her future husband, passing their home on the road. She ran from the manor without even putting her shoes on. She easily caught up with him on the road, and after screaming his name, he finally turned around when she grabbed his shoulder. He shook his head. He was sorry. Did he know this young woman? Shock turned to rage as she punched him in the nose. Bleeding and terrified, the monk did what monks do, and he prayed. Immediately, a divine light blinded and paralyzed the young woman, long enough for the monk to escape. Unfortunately, not even a light from the sky could restrain the young woman's indignant rage. She transformed into a dragon, a massive serpent, and slithered after Anshin. She bounded up the river and found that Anshin had already made his way back to his temple. Anshin had begged the priest to hide him, and so they put him in the big bronze bell at the top of the tower, the last place anyone would look. Lady Keo didn't look, though. She smelled. She found Anshin and attacked the bell, but she couldn't get through. Inside, Anshin smiled. He was safe. He would wait her out until her rage subsided, and she changed back. Wait, was it getting hot in here? Outside, Lady Kyo was using her fire breath on the bronze bell. By the time Anshin tried to get out, the walls were already a molten orange color. He roasted alive inside the bell. Unfortunately, the story doesn't have a happy ending for Lady Kyo. She threw herself into the river and drowned herself. If you find yourself getting so torn up about a breakup that you turn into a vicious snake monster, remember, you know, there are other fish in the sea. If you're leading someone on, but don't have the guts to be honest with them, there are other fish in the sea for you, but there might also be a horrifying dragon waiting to cook you alive in a bell. So just be real with people. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 